Good morning. He's holy, amen? Please stand one more time for the reading of God's word. This is Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah's vision of the Lord. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations and the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I, have, I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of People of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. And your sin is atoned for. We've been redeemed, amen. That's better. I have to lower this because I'm much shorter than everyone else. Go ahead and save your short jokes for the football game. As I said last night, uh, we will have a little time of confession and repentance after the game. For those of us who need it, I will be first in line. (laughs) I'm sorry, Sean might be first in line. He might beat me. So it's a pleasure to see you guys this morning, to worship together, to be together as family. It's great. Uh, We, uh, a lot of times when we think about the holiness of God, we don't a lot of times know what to do with it, you know? We, uh, you know, we've been in this series now, our Lord's, the Lord's Prayer, and last week we talked about the Father, and today we're going to talk about that line, hallowed be your name, or holy is your name. And, you know, as a kid growing up, and even well into my teens, and even maybe a little into my early adult years, uh, some of you still think I'm in my early adult years, but I don't. (laughs) Uh, I always pictured God being holy as like this guy uh, sitting on his throne, 
somewhere, you know, and he's kind of twirling his beard a little bit, and he's got his Holy Ghost binoculars, and he's watching me like some kind of old man in a peep show, you know what I mean, just kind of watching what I'm doing, and kind of angry. You ever think that sometimes being holy means you have to be angry at everything all the time? You ever, uh, I'm sure you're on Facebook or on the internet enough to see folks that are angry literally about everything all the time. Like no one can do, every, can do anything right. There's always someone. I even, uh, <laughs> I, I was reading a, reading a post about someone who was criticizing some guy giving away like a million dollars and he, was, he found a way to criticize it. It was incredible. And I thought, wow, like, what if people think that's what God is about? You know, that being holy means that you have to find a flaw with every single thing. That you can't ever be satisfied with anything. That must be an exhausting existence. What does it mean to say God is holy? I mean, I know it's a word we use, but, but what do we think it means when we use it? We don't really understand holy. So, you know, we have that image of the old guy with the binoculars just watching us do bad things. So, what do you picture in your mind when you hear about the holiness of God? Huh? Perfection. Any other thoughts? Huh? Not me. me. Yeah, join the club. Or actually, I should join your club. You were here first. Right. (laughs) Love of God. Yeah. Some people say, how many of you have ever heard that phrase? I think I said this the last time I preached, but I just hear it a lot. If I ever came into a church, the ceiling would fall down on my head, or I would be consumed in fire, like... You know, something terrible would happen. You ever hear that phrase, right? Yeah. It always makes me chuckle. Because it tells you a couple of things about them, doesn't it? The person who says that to you, it tells you that they know about their own life. They know their life isn't great. They know they've made bad decisions. And they think that God hates them for that. Yeah. That's what it tells you. It's interesting how we inherently know these things about ourselves, about God, on some levels. See, our problem is that we are so busy imagining what the holiness of God is like that we often don't even ask God what the holiness of God is like. You ever do that? You know, we do it to politicians these days. We do it to people we don't know. We do it to people we've heard of, right? We do it to athletes who do things we don't like. We don't ask them what they think or why they've done it or how they've done it. We assume. And then we filter whatever they say through that assumption that we've created. It's just what we do. But you see, if we ask God what he thinks holiness looks like, it might be a slightly different picture than the one that we might conjure up in our head or we've been taught to conjure in our head. You see, we are children of the Enlightenment. 
Everyone say enlightenment. Right. And so one of the key ideas of the enlightenment was that you had this clockmaker kind of God. Everyone say Isaac Newton. Isaac Newton. Isaac Newton was a Christian. In fact, uh, most of the scientists of the Enlightenment were Christians. Uh, just an aside. Um, they weren't atheists or anything like that. Uh, so Isaac Newton came up with this idea about the clockmaker. The idea that God kind of created the world, kind of wound it up. And it's like, okay, go. Go do your own thing. Go be off on your own. So we call this deism. Everyone say deism. And so what happens is we combine our, this idea of perfection and greatness and beyond temptation and beyond sin. And then in our heads, we combine it with this enlightenment, deistic image of God, of a being who's created the world and is kind of sitting off by himself and just kind of like, all right, okay, guys, have fun. But the Bible's picture of God doesn't look like that. It's just not even close. But you see, the age of reason began to elevate certain kinds of knowing, certain ways of thinking above others. And so we began to picture God in this far-removed kind of way so that we could create space for us to do things our way. Lots of folks think of the Old Testament God as a psychopath who doesn't like anybody and is always mad. Now, the Old Testament God does get mad, but it's not like he doesn't have cause. I mean, when the king of your people sacrifices his sons to a god, that's cause to be angry, right? I mean, that would make me angry, right? When your people... Um, who you pulled out of Egyptian slavery, uh, turn on you in less than six weeks and start worshiping some thing that they, <laughs> this is great. When, when Moses comes down from the mountain after meeting with God, he comes on the Israelites and they're all like having this ceremony and dancing around this golden calf, right? At the foot of the mountain. This is, this is six weeks after the Red Sea. Six weeks, okay? And so Moses is angry, as I would be too. Like, are you kidding me right now? And you know, you know what Aaron says to him? <laughs> I just laugh out loud because my sense of humor is very dark. He says, look, he goes, the people of Israel, they pressured me, and then we took all their gold and jewels, and we put it in the furnace, and then this altar popped out. I'm, I kid you not, that is, that is in the text. Go read it. It's in, a, it's in Exodus. Hilarious. I just, I'm, he literally said, we just stuck this in the furnace and this golden calf popped out. I don't know how it got here. Right. Amazing. So it's not like God just wakes up one morning and says, oh, they don't love me enough. I hate them all. Like, these people are crazy. They're as crazy as we are, right? I mean, they're not any worse than we are. I mean, the abortion count is, what, 50 million children now since it was legalized? You know, we're still, oh, we're doing all kinds of crazy things. I'm not even going to go there. So 
But we have these other promises from God. In Isaiah 54, you might want to write some of this stuff down because you will never keep up with all the bouncing around I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do. Isaiah 54, verses 7 and 8. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. He's talking to Israel in this time. And they've gone traipsing off, worshiping other gods and doing all their insanity and trying to make pacts with pagan nations and putting all their hopes in that stuff. And God can't believe this. And so there's a point where he just says, look, you guys are making me look like an idiot. I have to step away. And so he steps away. He takes his protection away and Babylon comes in and destroys them. And they're carried off into exile. And so this is what that's about. It says, I left you because I had to, but I will come back. Jump to Isaiah 55, verses 1 to 5. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make, you, make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that you did not know shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. That phrase, Holy One of Israel, is far more often coupled with verses centered around redemption than verses centered around judgment. Malachi chapter 3. This is a very interesting promise. Now Malachi is after the return from Babylon. Okay? So I apologize. No, I'm not going to apologize. I'm not sincere. There's, you know, you got this little mini history lesson, right? So you have Israel, right? And they, they become a nation under Saul, right? They unite under Saul. Then Saul's crazy. And so he's replaced by David. God promises David a house, capital H, not a building, but a family line, right? Then David has Solomon, who's not nearly as wise as he should be. Solomon has an idiot son named Rehoboam. Everyone say Rehoboam. Rehoboam, who doesn't listen to anything his father says and splits the kingdom in two by making everyone angry at him, all right? So in the north, up here, Israel, you got 10 tribes. In the south down here, you got two tribes. Then the two nations do really insane things for another century or so, worshiping idols, sacrificing their children, practicing temple prostitution, setting up high places all over creation, ignoring the temple, insane things. So the, northerns, the northern tribes, the ten northern tribes, they buy it first. The Assyrians come from here, come down, gone. Isaiah... Uh, Jonah, 
uh, I think Jeremiah, they all prophesy about this. They warn is the northern tribes, this is going to happen to you. They don't listen, of course, because we don't. We think we're headstrong and nothing bad will happen to us. And Assyria destroys them, and they are scattered to the winds. Because that's how the Assyrians conquer people. They crush them. That's how they used to do it. And then they would deport all of their people to all over the world in their conquered lands so that they wouldn't try to fight back. Because everyone knows that it's much harder to defeat someone when they're entrenched in their homeland than when they're not. So the Assyrians, because they're smart like that and pretty evil, they just scattered everybody. So then all that's left is the south, right? And the southern country, you would think they would look up and go, oh, maybe we shouldn't be that terrible. You know, because then we might survive. We should put our trust in God. No, they didn't do that. So uh, they did their own thing again, right? More idol worship, more evil, more... There's little pockets of guys that don't do that, and then there's more of that, and God warns them over and over and over and over and over, and finally they don't listen, and God says, I will send my vassal Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. And so Babylon comes and crushes the Jews, destroys them, deports the core of of their leadership back to Babylon, okay, so, leave, so there are still people in Jerusalem and in, in that area down there in Judah, but they're leaderless and they've, they're being ruled now by uh, the Babylonians. And you have all the leadership and the royalty and anyone of any power deported to Babylon. Okay, so now that's where they're living. All right? So 70 years go by and God moves on Cyrus, the king of Babylon. Everyone say Cyrus. Okay. He moves on Cyrus, the king of Babylon, and he says, all right, you Jews, you've been here long enough. I don't really, he didn't really even have a good reason to do this. He says, go ahead, go back. I'll even pay you. So that's what they did. They went back. All right? So Malachi is set after the return. I know you're like, why is John doing this insane, like, hand motion thing? This is why. Malachi is set after the return from Babylon. Okay? So the Jews have been destroyed, conquered. There's only two tribes left. The other ten have been scattered in the wind. They don't know where they are. All right? All that's left are are these few folks that come back to Babylon to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple. And so Malachi, there's a sense in which when they come back, things aren't quite the same. The temple doesn't seem the same as it did before. And so Malachi prophesies in chapter 3. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. Our God is a consuming fire. He is. Now, we're so busy a lot of times talking about just the side of God that judges sin or just the side of God that has compassion and forgiveness that we often don't realize the two are just married inside the same being. That the holiness of God consists of judging sin and consists of having compassion on his children. 
that because God is a consuming fire, he will destroy sin. It's part of who he is. And because God is a loving father, because he's holy, he will have compassion on his children and love them because that's who he is. When you go home, do yourself a little Bible study. Find the phrase, Holy One of Israel, in the Old Testament. It's in there a lot. And just read the context. Read the context where you find it. You see, back to Isaiah 6, right? That's our core text. So Isaiah has this vision, and he's standing in the temple, and he sees... He sees the glory of God, the holiness of God, and they're all singing holy, holy, holy. Now, Isaiah's response doesn't necessarily have to be everyone's response. I mean, I've heard of people responding to God in different ways. There are different ways to respond to God when we see his holiness, when we see his goodness. Sometimes, we respond to God's holiness in denial. This manifests in different ways, right? We'll either try to pretend there is no God. That's a favorite one of the West right now. We will try to pretend that God is not a person, but a force. Something impersonal that we don't have to talk to or really interact with. We will pretend that our, that our problem isn't really that bad. That there's, no, that there's not that big a difference between us and God. Right? We'll, uh, we'll act like God has to answer to us for the condition of the world. Even though it was God who told us to fill the earth and subdue it. So... You know, like, we, we really have nothing to say because we haven't done what we're supposed to do anyway. But we'll try to deny our part in all of that. You know, we'll try to act like all our bad decisions had nothing to do with how we feel right now standing in the holiness of God. We'll try to feel like the badness that we feel about ourselves when we look at the holiness of another life. You ever, you ever see that? You see a person who you know is holy. You know, you know that they're chasing after God. You know they are. Doesn't that person just make you mad sometimes? Uh, I remember a strange conversation where we were talking about uh, sexuality and... Uh, it came up in the conversation that Emily and I waited before we got, we, we made it, we waited until we got married to have sex. And, uh, and Emily, Emily did not have sex until she, we got married, okay? And it came up in the conversation at work, and a man got angry and acted like I had done something wrong. I was like, that's crazy. <laughs> Instead of just saying, hey, that's great. 
okay, you know, he got mad at me. As if I was the one following Emily around, making sure that she stayed, <laughs> stayed pure all the way through our wedding. Like, <laughs> I, I, that was her decision, man. Like, don't look at me. Right. It was all of a sudden like I had done something terrible. Because what's happened is our, our guilt about our own bad choices has turned on us to twist us. Right? Yeah. So we, we look on holiness, we look on a good thing, and it twists the way we see it. So now we'll call that evil. And we'll call what we've done good. Well, at least I'm honest about it. Great. Well, you're not that honest because you're trying to pat yourself on the back for it. At least I'm honest about the fact that I'm a big jerk. And that's great. Like, all right, well, that's a start. But that's not enough. And so we're not really being honest then. We're denying that there's a problem. Another response then, and really this kind of is a natural outflow of our denial, is pride. We start to harden our heart. We're married to a specific way of doing things. Jesus comes along and blows that up. Says, no, that's, you can do something else. Honest, I have something for you. But we harden our heart against it instead. Turn with me to, if you have your Bibles in front of you, John chapter 9. Now, this is right after Jesus had just healed a guy born blind, right? So he's in, uh, he's in the temple. He's healed this guy who's been born blind. And the Pharisees are not happy with this, okay? Because they don't like Jesus, all right? But he heals this guy who's been blind from birth. And so they spend most of chapter 9, the Pharisees do, trying to prove the guy had been lying the whole time. That sounds familiar to me. It's funny how people don't change that much, right? Because whenever someone is faced with facts that they don't like, what do they do? They attack the facts. Oh, that can't possibly be true because it's from X website and they're always wrong about everything. Okay, what you're saying is you don't want to believe them because they contradicted where you were. Right. So let's jump to verse 34. So they had just, they had just, uh, I'm sorry, verse 30. The man answered, this is after uh, the Pharisees are lecturing this blind guy who's not blind anymore. Oh, there you go. Oh, you're awesome. Right. So the Pharisees had just got done lecturing this, this ex-blind person about how is it that Jesus had nothing to do with him being healed. And so, so he says, oh, why this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. So we know that God does not listen to sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. But they answered him, you were born in utter sin. And would you teach us? And they cast him out. So they can't listen to this guy because he's scumbag and, you know, they're wonderful and amazing. And, of course, he has nothing to teach them. As Jesus heard that they had cast him out and having found him, 
Jesus said, well, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, now this is the blind guy. He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. The man replied, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Now listen to this. Because, look, we, want to, we always want to associate Jesus. Oh, he's just this guy that wants to give everybody a big hug. And, you know, maybe we'll smoke a little weed over here off to the side. And we'll talk about the meaning of life. Okay, so, all right. Listen to what Jesus says. For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see. And those who see may become blind. And some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said... Are we also blind? Other versions are translated as in, are you saying that we, the Pharisees, are blind? Like, are you kidding? We're the leaders. You're saying we're blind? And what does Jesus say in response? Jesus said, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But since you say we see, your guilt remains. Our God is a consuming fire. That verse in Malachi 3, it's a promise of the arrival of Jesus. If you want a a reference, a cross-reference there out of Malachi 3, go read Mark chapter 1, the first five verses. Mark connects Malachi 3 to another verse in Isaiah. So Jesus is that consuming fire, the holiness of God, the presence of God. The holiness of God meets iniquity in our lives and he heals it. The blind man is healed and what does he do? He responds with worship. The Pharisees watch it happen and what do they do? Huh! You're not from God. They were unwilling, unwilling to soften their hearts even a little bit to listen to what Jesus had to say. You can't teach us. You can't teach me, God. I know better than you. Come on, God, let's sit down at the table and I'll explain to you all the things you've done that aren't right or good. As if me, being 33 years old, growing up in a pretty cushy existence compared with the rest of the history of humanity, have any idea what true suffering really is. And I've been through a divorce, so that was awful. But let's be fair, like I didn't have to live through the plague I didn't have to spend 13 hours a day hoeing and beating the ground. I don't even know how you farm. I didn't have to spend 13 hours a day farming. Right. Only to have some lord come by on his horse and take all my stuff anyway. Right. So let's just keep things in perspective. But we want to do this with God. We want to sit him down. We want to treat God like he's one of us, like he's our equal. We do this to God all the time. God is holy and good and sovereign as long as he's doing things our way. But as soon as God does things we don't approve of, now he's bad. But if God is holy and God and I disagree, who do you think is wrong there? Right. It's a safe bet that I'm wrong and that God is not wrong. Right. 
lot of times we want to have a holy God who we get to supervise. Yeah. This is the Pharisee's problem. All right? Now, sure, there were symptoms, right? The Pharisees had an outward religion problem, but that wasn't their core problem. Okay? The Pharisees had a we're better than everybody and their mother problem, but that was a symptom, not the core of their problem. The core of their problem was God is holy and sovereign as long as he does it our way. And the minute he doesn't look the way we think he should, down with him. That was their problem. All of these other things you see the Pharisees doing, symptoms, that's their problem. Their God, and this is what happens, right? We start with denial, we move into pride, and we create a God in our own image. Look, if you and God agree all the time, there's something wrong. You know there's something wrong when Scripture is always for your friend, for your father, for your brother, for your neighbor, but it's never for you. There's something wrong if a word of God, if a sermon, if when you do your devotional, if your first thought is, you know, so-and-so needs to hear this. Yeah, you're in trouble. Now, so-and-so may need to hear that. That's true. But if that's always the thing on your mind and you're never thinking about yourself and how God is trying to speak to you, then you've created a God in your own image or you're on the way to doing so. And if God always agrees with us, then he is not nearly as holy as we claim. Think about that for a minute. If God always agrees with you, then he isn't holy. The Pharisees, the leaders, the Jewish leaders of the time, they could not accept this. The holiness of God is a consuming fire. He destroys sin. And so then... What do we do? Well, let's read Isaiah's response in chapter 6. Isaiah's response. And I said, Wow, God, I'm really great. Great. Wow. I'm so happy, God, that there's another person in the world who's just like me. That's not in there. Sorry. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now think about that exchange in John 9, when Jesus says to the Pharisees, if you were blind, then you would not be guilty of sin. But since you say we see, your guilt remains. God's problem was not that they're wrong. Everybody's wrong. His problem was that they could not admit that they were wrong. His problem was that even when faced with reality, the Pharisees instead pasted over it. 
said, oh, Jesus, you're from the devil. You can't be who God is. You can't be real. You can't be saying anything that's real that we have to listen to. Instead, we're going to pretend that you're evil so that we can ignore you. Look, we see this all the time, right? I saw a really funny picture on, uh, on Facebook. I have a Facebook addiction. And uh, Emily will attest that it's terrible. So I'm seeing this picture, and it's a picture of a garter snake. Or it might not be a garter snake. I don't know. It was a snake. And he, had, he was in mid, like he had just come up out of the water, and he had a snake in his mouth. Not a snake. He had a fish in his mouth. It was pretty smooth snake, like grabbing this fish out of the water. I was kind of impressed. But anyway, he's got the fish in his mouth and the, the, <laughs> the meme says, brave snake rescues fish out of the water. <laughs> right. And it made me laugh because it's clearly a wrong interpretation of what we're seeing. But it's how we do things with facts when they say things we don't want to hear. That's who we are. We take facts and we twist them around and create an alternate reality where the snake is just being polite and the fish who's trying to wriggle out is actually the rude evil one. Why don't you just let the snake take you out of the water? He's trying to help you. Right. But we create alternate realities in our minds because we don't want to face the truth. So Isaiah says, woe is me, I'm the snake. The proper response in the presence of of God's holiness is humility. It's to say, wow, you are holy. What am I? The psalm says, what is man that you are mindful of him? Why do you care about us? Those are better questions. Reflecting on how great you are in the presence of God. Oh, it's kind of silly. It's kind of like, uh, you ever watch those videos where you have athletes and they... uh, the athletes come up and they're, they're playing with the kids, right? And so then the little kids are telling the athletes how great they are at a sport, right? And you're like, oh, that's really cute. It's adorable because he doesn't, you know, he doesn't know. Like he's just growing. Right, that's how we look when we brag about how great we are in God's presence. We're like that little kid, oblivious to how much we have to grow. The other correct response is Repentance. God is a consuming fire. He is holy. All the Pharisees had to do was repent. Was to say, you know what? We're wrong about this. We need to listen to you instead. They didn't. Their hearts were too hard. Where are we in that? Where in our lives have we fashioned a God of our own image? 
who approves of too many things that we do, who thinks that everything we do is wonderful. You know, there's a difference between loving a person and thinking that everything they do is great. In fact, if you encourage them that everything they do is great, you probably don't love them in the way that you say you do. Right? You can't let your five-year-old think that it's okay to run around like a crazy person all the way up till he's like 85. Right? At some point, you just got to stop and go, all right, I need to pay attention for 30 seconds and listen to people talk or, you know. You can't let your kid run around screaming, mine, all the time, right? Right. At some point, there's going to have to be a, no, son, you can't take things out of people's hands and say, that's yours. That's not how it works. If you don't do that, you don't love your son because he's going to grow up with a problem that you can fix. Right. The holiness of God is a consuming fire that loves us enough to want to destroy what is clinging to us and trying to kill us. And if we try to hold on to those things, we will be destroyed. People often want to think of God as some kind of evil being who likes Likes it when people die. Likes it when people suffer. Look, the scripture says that God does not delight in the death of the wicked. He wants them instead to turn from their wickedness and live. Because this is about living your life. This is about reality. When faced with the holiness of God our response is going to determine how we experience the holiness of God. So that's my question for you. That's my challenge for you. We're good, right? We got till 1 o'clock, right, Pastor Dan? We can keep talking. (laughs) When faced with Jesus of Nazareth, everyone who met him was driven to decide how they would react. Either they would respond with hardness of heart and double down on their life and on their view and say, nope, this is who I am and this is what I'm doing. And I don't care that it's wrong. I want that instead. And then, now look, that's where I was not even that many years ago. All right, that's where I knew what I was doing. I knew it was wrong and I wanted it anyway and I didn't care. I wasn't like, oh, I didn't know I shouldn't. Look, I know I shouldn't have done those things. They were terrible. I knew for me. There's no reason to pretend that we're someone we're not. When we stand in the presence of God, what did Isaiah say? He didn't try to pretend that he was better than he was. He didn't try to line up all the good things he had done. He just said, here I am. This is awful. And what is God's response? Let's read. Let's read what God's response was. Then God kicked Isaiah out of his temple and said, you're right, you're terrible. Get out of my presence. Nope, that's not in there either. I think some people, if they, if they were writing the Bible, that's what would be in there. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken from the tongs of the altar. And he touched my mouth and he said, behold, this has touched your lips Your guilt has taken away, and your sin is atoned for. 
God is faithful and true. He is holy. And he will consume our sin and destroy it. And if we just let it go and say, I don't want this anymore. Show me something else. We can have something else. We can have what Isaiah got. So I want to encourage you. The scripture says we can approach the throne of grace with confidence because of Jesus. We don't need to hide who we are. Jesus said that the good news is that light has come into the world, but that some men love darkness and so they hide their deeds. Bring them into the open. Drag them into the light. And the Holy Spirit will help you kill them. That's stuff in your life. We hide it. We think we're hiding from God. We're not hiding from God. All he wants us to do is drag those things out in front of him. And we can conquer them together. That is the gospel. That is the holiness of God. The consuming fire that wants to take us from where we are now to something more. So I want to challenge you as you walk with God, as you pray, if let the scripture speak to you. Let it open your soul. Let it reach inside of you and encourage you and convict you of sin and then encourage you to bring it out before God where your Redeemer, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, will help you destroy it. And you can be free. That is what the children of God are called for. Not only to do this in our own lives, but to help other people do it in theirs. So I want to encourage you with that word today. The holiness of God is a consuming fire that wants to free us from all those things that have clung to us like barnacles and make us new. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you that you are a holy God. We want to thank you that you are not okay with sin, but that you love us. We pray, God, that you would help us to be open to the moving of your Holy Spirit, that you would help us to be open to the conviction of the, of the Word and of the Spirit, that you would teach us to open our hearts and our lives and to partner with you as we destroy all those things in our lives that are still in our way and that as we help others do the same. Lord, we pray that you would be with the hearts and the minds of folks who have lost people on this day 15 years ago. It is still very hard for them. Lord, we pray that you would be with them, that you would give them encouragement and that you would teach us what holiness is as you walk with us.
In the name of the Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.